Hello and welcome to the Marketing Futures Podcast, member of the ANA Podcast Network. I'm your host, Mike Burbridge. When it comes to gaming, marketers need to finally stop playing around. All right, I'll see myself out. But seriously, one of the biggest blind spots in the entire marketing universe is the opportunity presented by gaming, which in 2021 was a $180 billion, that's with a B, industry. Why are marketers so sheepish to enter the gaming space? Today's guest, Jonathan Stringfield, VP of Global Business Research and Marketing at Activision Blizzard, is here to explain. Jonathan and I discussed his recent book, Get in the Game, which lays out the cultural and economic importance of gaming. Listen in to hear on the biggest opportunity you're likely missing out on. Ready, player one? Let's start the show. Everyone, we're back in my favorite place in the entire world, the ANA Marketing Futures Virtual Podcast Studio. And my guest today is Jonathan Stringfield, the VP of Global Business Research and Marketing at Activision Blizzard and author of Get Into the Game. Jonathan, thank you so, so much for being here this morning. Thank you so much for having me. Looking forward to it. Likewise, likewise. Uh, we are doing a deep dive into gaming and trying to get uh, the industry's head around it because it's been far, far too long. Uh, we should all be kind of neck deep by now. But before we do that, I want to get a baseline on you, Jonathan. So could you tell our audience a little bit about yourself and how your journey led you to Activision Blizzard? Sure, yeah. And I mean, maybe starting there, um, as you might pick up a lot of my, my day job has to do with working with advertisers, agencies, and what have you to help them understand the opportunities in gaming, right? So mm -hmm. we do this through a lot of mechanisms, but much of it kind of leaning into teaching about, you know, the gaming audiences, their motivations, leaning into insights to, to guide the way. And that's kind of been the common thread throughout my career. Um, you know, prior to coming to Activision Blizzard, I oversaw measurement research for the U.S. business at Twitter early on the measurement research team at Facebook, and then was at Nielsen before that, basically doing TV writing. So like, basically an advertising research lifer, but all with the lens of how do we work with advertisers to kind of inform them about new technologies and how they should think about them, and more importantly, think about the human elements of them, which kind of resonates with, you know, kind of my night job, where obviously I do some writing, hence the book, but then also as someone who has an academic background in the social sciences, and really has concentrated on, you know, looking at how we as humans use technology to interact with one another, basically uh, form societies mediated by technological experiences. So all these things kind of speak to each other because, you know, end of the day, when we think about, you know, how we relate to video games or social media or what have you, realistically, the most important thing is kind of that human element behind it and then how we interrelate to one another with it to gain that better consumer and marketing understanding. Mm -hmm. One thousand percent. And I think that makes you a perfect guest for this podcast. Um, and I really love in your book, Get in the Game, um, just that slant that you take video games from how human beings relate to that and how that augments and influences behavior. Uh, it's a fantastic read and, and really has helped me kind of wrap my head around it, being not a hardcore gamer myself. However, as you would see in the book, casual gamers log in just as many, if not more hours uh, than the hardcores. So regardless of uh, whether you're really into it or whether you're a casual gamer, there is a massive, massive amount of consumer attention around gaming. But there's still a big disconnect between a lot of marketers in the gaming ecosystem. Can you kind of uh, unpack of what, why you think that is? 
Yeah, I mean, I think there's there's a lot of competing theses here. Um, and again, any one of them is probably, you know, touches on some bit of the truth. But mm -hmm. I think what seems like the most prevailing one is that we, we've kind of gone through phases, right? So on the one hand, there was a lot of misconceptions about gaming, the gaming audience and what have you. So, you know, this old kind of tired trope that gaming is only played by young men, in particular basements and whatnot. And again, like really got to the point where that was almost becoming like this meme with folks that really talk about gaming a lot. Mm -hmm. But, you know, based on the fact that there is some truth in, at least in so far that that's kind of how society has looked at video gaming for so long and marketers kind of pick that up. Now, some of that to a certain degree has evaded. And I think we have a lot to say about COVID and how gaming reached a resurgence there, this ongoing interest in the metaverse and what have you that is starting to kind of have folks pay a little bit more attention to that space. And I think we're getting to the point where, okay, fine. It's it's not necessarily just kids, but that there's a broader opportunity. Mm. That's kind of one of like potentially three blockers, right? Like the, the others that you might point to is that, you know, much in the same way that gaming has been around for quite some time. And again, we are looking at a history of 50, 60 some odd years advertising or marketing opportunities in games have also been present for 50, 60, some odd years, in fact, in some of the first Atari games. So what you have is that unlike kind of these newer platforms, like the ones that I had worked on in the past, like a Facebook or a Twitter or what have you, nowadays TikTok or what have you, it's not as if marketers are approaching it with kind of fresh eyes as a new platform. Mm. Gaming kind of has a little bit of this been there, done there baggage, but the trick being that a lot of those opportunities early on were just like not great, right? Or at least not right. really well fit for how marketers like to buy media. Now that's changing these days. And I think we're at the point where the scale of the audience is there, the opportunities to which you can put, you know, various formats are there, you know, there, there's a lot more options that are that are opening up to, to integrate the ecosystem, but then it's still very complicated and there's still not just a marketplace that you can go to reach some odd 3 billion gamers in the world. So now I think we're kind of at that place where the biggest challenges are both kind of overturning some of these, you know, laden preconceptions about been there, done that, bad stuff, wasn't really great marketing experiences. And now like, okay, fine, even if I get over that, well, how do I do it? And that's really kind of the impetus of the book because we kept running into this question and candidly, there weren't a lot of great materials to help folks navigate that question. Yeah, and actually that kind of leads me to my next uh, question. So regardless of what space you're entering as a brand, authenticity is now a make or break quality that you need. But for marketers who just don't have the time or just frankly, don't have the interest to dive into the world of gaming and spend a few hours on a console, on a platform. How do those marketers gain enough of an understanding of this ecosystem to meaningfully integrate their marketing into it? I mean, one, there's, there's like a little bit of the self-awareness, right? That, you know, it, it's kind of campy, but, you know, when I've gone and talked with agencies or brands or whatnot, you do that thing where it's like, you know, okay, how many people have a phone in their pocket? You know, everyone raises their hand. And then you say, how many people consider themselves gamers? Maybe about a third of the room will, will raise their hand. And then how many people have a game on their phone? And again, virtually everyone kind of raises their hand. So like, first and foremost, it's kind of getting around some of these sticky conceptions we have of like what gamer is, which is in and of itself a little bit of a complicated you know, title, which doesn't really well fit the larger audience that simply plays games. Mm -hmm. And above and beyond that, again, for most senior marketers, I'd argue that even with interest in things like, you know, kind of newer platforms like TikTok or whatnot, I'd also argue they're probably not all experts that are on TikTok every day recording videos and posting that with, you know, their teenagers and, and what have you. What's more likely is that they have that conceptual understanding and then rely on experts that they hire 
to really kind of understand the ins and outs of the platform. We're going to see the same thing, right? And mm -hmm. I think in the same way that a little knowledge for these senior marketers goes a long way with, you know, platforms like TikTok or any kind of like emerging social media, same deal with gaming, right? Like, I don't think you need to be at the point where, you know, you're kind of running raids in World of Warcraft or what <laughs> have you, but just kind of understanding the ecosystem, the opportunities, why people plug into them, the different genres and how that relates to marketing. Again, just that baseline level, I think helps a lot. And then from there, like so many other ways that we kind of navigate the media ecosystem, you're going to want to, you know, rely on specialists, the publishers or what have you to really kind of help navigate to the best experiences for the brand. That makes a lot of sense. And I think, you know, in, in my talks with folks about the impending metaverse and everything, social media has been a good, at least kind of comparison to how you entered that space. You entered it with a terrible 30 second TV spot that nobody wanted to see on Facebook. And what did you learn from that? Okay, you needed to adjust. So I think taking those experiences and seeing that gaming is not radically different on a kind of, you know, theoretical strategic level. Um, I really, I think that that is a great way of framing it if you're not going to kind of get in the game, uh, pun absolutely intended. So one of the things that really jumped out and grabbed me in your book was this statement, and I'd love if you could kind of explain what you mean to our listeners, that gaming matters because it's a way of relating to media, not because of any one app or platform. Yeah, I mean... Most folks, when they think about gaming, video games, or, or anything in between, it's it's kind of you look at these like frivolities, right? And and they are. But again, when we're talking about that kind of long history of gaming, what we'll find is that almost as long as there have been video screens, there have been video games. And this is meaningful because as we've explored new technology, we ultimately kind of have this fear of it intrinsically, right? So again, let's point mm -hmm. to things like social media, the metaverse, and so on and so forth, right? Like well-documented research and discourse around like, oh, this is going to fundamentally change everything about us and society is going to collapse and so on and so forth. A bunch <laughs> of that, you know, later we found to be just kind of not quite as dire as we thought, right? Mm -hmm. So in line with that, you know, if we think about the first computers, like the minute they had oscilloscopes, the first actual video game arguably was Tennis for Two. That was put together as this demonstration to show people like what a computer could do, right? Mm -hmm. We think about televisions, you know, this is like the bread and butter of marketers nowadays. We feel like, oh, of course, it's always been around. It's this thing that just people, you know, picked up and just love right away. That's not necessarily the case. Like if you look at the history of television, at first folks were a little versed to it because it was just this thing they put in their house that was just pouring information at them that they no longer could have a dialogue with, right? So again, really think back to like the early days of that. That was something very different to how we may have consumed information in the past. So in that sense, games actually allowed folks, video games in particular, and some of the first home consoles, allowed us to have a little bit of mastery over that technology that now I can tell the television what to do. So I won't go as far so far as to claim that, you know, we really should thank video games for television being as pervasive as it is and a wonderful vehicle for, for marketing, but it sure as hell helped. And then if you look beyond that to mobile phones and phones with touch screens and these really intuitive control screens through which, you know, how we learn to kind of operate them, again, came from like slingshotting birds or matching jewels or candies and so on and so forth. So when we think about gaming, it's important to realize that it solves for a lot of needs, inclusive of very fundamental human needs that allow us to apply them to technology. So when we think about, again, metaverse or the very future of the internet, where maybe it's ostensibly in virtual worlds, this is going to come full circle that it's already the case and increasingly will be the case that we're going to look to games to help us kind of understand and think about and how to at first navigate these worlds. 
I love it. You phrase it in the book as kind of video games are the first tricks we teach our machines when a new machine comes along. And I think that's incredibly helpful a, a way to think about video gaming as kind of like a pioneer. It's kind of the scout into the new territory in almost every media se and technological sense of the word. And so, yeah, I mean, again, I've been kind of gushing, but really this book helps you put into perspective the importance of gaming beyond, oh, it's doing better than the movie industry. It's doing better than this industry. It's doing better than that industry. There's a reason that cyclically, it always kind of comes back to these major waves and kind of thrushes of attention. And I think that is one of those pieces that we've kind of brushed over, right? That yes, it's a form of media. Yes, it's a form of entertainment, an increasingly important one, and one that folks are consuming that much more. But also, it's just like a generalized cultural phenomenon, because how people relate to games also go out of the game experience, forums and streetwear and now esports and things of that nature. So I think we're, we're getting to the point where, yes, we should understand it as a medium and appreciate it as such. And in one that is a mass media to which we can really reach out to consumers, but also understand like so many other forms of media or art or what have you, there is this larger cultural experience around it. And all of this kind of speaks to it, again, inclusive of how technology is kind of wedded to it, because again, it is inherently one of the arguably first digital first forms of entertainment media. Absolutely. So, you know, this is the Marketing Futures podcast. I'd like to start kind of turning our gaze to the future and kind of the next step that a lot of us see for gaming is really fully entering into the virtual world. However, for many years, there's been kind of a standoff between VR hardware and VR game developers, uh, which has stymied VR's growth. How do you see this conflict of, well, you know, we're not going to make a, a better, leaner, more efficient Oculus until there's something better and more immersive to put on it. Well, we're not going to create that thing unless there's something that's going to host it on a mass media scale. How do you see that conflict resolving ultimately? Yeah, I mean, like so many things, it's a function of time and a lot of factors coming together, right? I, I think where we, a lot of the industry kind of stumbled a bit is that we saw these VR experiences getting kind of better and better. And again, VR is something that's been around for many, many years, right? Mm -hmm. And there was this ongoing dialogue. Well, ooh, next year, that's the year that VR is going to hit it. Oh, VR, okay, no, no, no. Next year, the, the year after that, that's when VR is really going to do it, and so on and so forth, right? And this has gone on forever to today, mm -hmm. and it's still not the case, right? Um, so you can look at gl like little glimmers, right? So like, you know, Oculus Go had like a really nice Christmas because they discounted it heavily. And, you know, basically every like 12 to 17 year old in, in the country got one, right? So they, they really kind of expand their base. But then if you look at potentially the most primed folks for VR, and the, which is to say like PC gamers, right? The folks mm -hmm. that have all of the hardware to really kind of run with it and also are really interested in potentially purchasing and using expensive hardware for these these experiences. If you look on a platform like Steam, which is a popular one for PC games, they do this wonderful thing where they enumerate the install base of technology. And if you look at VR headsets, it's about 2% still. And again, the reason for that, and you kind of touched on it, is that there's still this big gap between the quality of the hardware, the obtrusiveness of the hardware, mm -hmm. relative to what I can do with it. So by that, I mean, there's not a ton of VR content out there, right? And the headsets themselves are still a little cumbersome. Now they're, they're getting better every year, right? And I think this is where, we're, where we get to that like function of time, right? But you know, you're still looking at screens that are ostensibly right in your face and don't look as good as what I can get from my hyper-tuned gaming monitor or television or what have you. So I'm making real trade-offs for that immersive experience. Now, once you stop asking me to make those trade-offs, then we might be onto something, right? 
And when we think about, you know, what's going to kind of enable that, like, sure, it's something about like, you know, microprocessors getting better and, you know, the, the devices being less cumbersome or what have you. But I think one of the most influential technologies for things like VR and AR and also gaming more generally will be the concept of cloud computing that takes a lot of the need for the compute to happen in local devices and essentially outsources that because then we're going to look at a world where one, we can start to have game experiences on any screen, which is certainly meaningful, but that also these, you know, glasses or headsets or what have you don't need a lot of wires or don't need to be cumbersome or what have you. They can all of a sudden render these really awesome experiences and maybe a larger library of experiences almost instantaneously without, again, having all of the bulk and what have you. So, you know, I think we're at the point where certainly the, the conversation about metaverse has really raised folks' interest in things like gaming and AR and VR more generally, but we're still at the point where, you know, if we look at the, the content of the experiences, the quality of the hardware, and how we can kind of circumvent some of the problems with the, the computational requirements, we're looking at a near future issue, but one that's still several years off. And I think we're going to make some small steps in, in the short term to get there. So it's one of these things where I think we need to stop, you know, kind of falling over ourselves to be like, yo, it's coming, it's coming next year, next year, next year. Well, okay, let's, let's wait for the consumers to mm -hmm. get to the point where they can judge that the experience you're giving me is better than the trade-offs I need to have for that experience. And it's very simple, but very fundamental to where we are with the adoption of things like VR, if not most entertainment experiences. Yeah, very, very well put. It's like, if you're not letting me do something I can't already do, what interest do, you know, what are you offering me? Maybe just emotion sickness, who knows? But yeah. anyway, like again, <laughs> not to completely gloss over that either, but like, you know, again, you are looking at the, it, you know, game designers have got very good at creating immersion with flat screens. So right. you there's a high bar. So just being the fact that, oh, I can look around it, it's not gonna be enough. So like, and, and I think that's, again, a, a common theme that we're just not putting that consumer centricity to enough of this, that like, what are we really giving them mm -hmm. that will make it that much more valuable that they'll wanna jump through the hoops that we're kind of asking them to jump through. Yeah, absolutely. That really uh, resonates with me with my kind of first real VR headset experience. The first 30 seconds, mind-blowing, really cool, started to get a lot of stuff. It was this thing where you're standing in a room and there's just a, a sign that says turn around. You turn around and, oh my God, you're on the moon and you're looking at the planet Earth. Right. And like, wow, what a moment. Second 31... I'm looking at my terrible looking hands, picking up stuff and dropping it. And I've gotten to the end of, of that experience. So yeah, I think- that Immersion that, broken, just like it, that. Precisely, precisely. So consumer centricity, we talk a lot on the pod about, um, but that's really where the, the future and success of VR is going to be. Now, uh, if you're a listener, a regular listener to this podcast, you are probably getting sick of me saying the metaverse doesn't exist yet. We're talking a lot about it. One of the biggest companies on earth just renamed itself uh, after it. It doesn't exist yet because that's interoperable. It's being able to go from any platform to any platform, keeping all of your essence, your things to yourself. And that's just not the case right now. What we have now are a series of open world games, which have a lot to offer, uh, can be extremely entertaining, but really are only kind of a taste and a vision of what the metaverse could be. Jonathan, I don't think there's anybody I can better ask this question. How do you see our journey from the world we have now, where there are some open world games to a truly interconnected metaverse? How do you see that playing out along the timeline? I mean, I think it's... 
it'll eventually come down to not entirely different to some of the core points that we talked about in VR, right? That if we think about what's kind of unique about this conversation about metaverse, one is that it's happening very early, right? And, and there's a lot of, you know, things that we can point to as to why that is, whether it's, you know, this broader thesis that, oh, well, all of our media just kind of goes closer to kind of as real experience as possible, which you, know, you can kind of buy, but there, there's some caveats on it relative to something that, you know, it's basically being pushed as, you know, part of an agenda to really drive adoption of things like cryptocurrencies, right? Well, eh, you can kind of buy that too. But if we think about it more broadly, what then happens is not necessarily that, you know, oh, the, the switch has been flicked, you know, Zuck has declared his company meta and therefore we're in the metaverse, like, of course not. What it has done is afford us, again, this longer term view, but then also has opened up the thinking of, individuals and organizations outside of gaming to think about virtual worlds. So then what's going to happen is that I think, you know, the game industry is going to keep doing what they do well, which is to say, make these interesting virtual worlds with a lot of experiences in them and have these tools, which are highly diversified and unfortunately non-standardized as a lot of incumbents or, or new entrants are about to find out to build these worlds. And then what we'll find is that the organizations now within gaming are one, very likely going to start using some of these tools, but then also look to gaming as a kind of guiding light in terms of why are millions of people in these gaming worlds, but only a few thousand in these non-gaming worlds? And again, the answer is deceptively simple. It's because mm -hmm. there are things to do in the gaming world, right? There is a lot of content there. There are things that are fulfilling for the users in the gaming world relative to some of the other ones, which basically all you can really do is have the raw thrill of raw thrill of ownership within them right which mm. probably isn't enough so i think what we'll see here too is a bit of a convergence that i think there will be optimally like this kind of you know back and forth in terms of innovation that the gaming organizations can start to pick up some of the angles in terms of innovation world building from non-gaming organizations non-gaming organizations as they're starting to get this world of will, world building will pick up the tools and also potentially the sensibilities from the gaming world which is to say to build things that are going to be those kind of enriching experiences now once that happens i think we will start to get to the point where the content within these virtual worlds are getting compelling we're not speaking yet to all the technological issues that are required which is again you hinted on some interoperability you know, we talked a little bit about, you know, the computational requirements to having these massive 3D worlds. Again, we're going to look potentially look to things like cloud or what have you to help with that. A lot that needs to happen there. But I think the nearer term potentiality is that we'll start to see more, again, hopeful innovation in world building that will create these really interesting experiences that will start to push broader interest towards virtual worlds, even if not explicitly for gaming. So that makes a hell of a lot of sense. Uh, and, you know, I think uh, like a lot of things, like you were saying with VR right now, uh, it's much more important that marketers wrap their heads around the importance of gaming and the importance of open world gaming, because like I said earlier, that's going to be the scout into the new pioneer. You know what I mean? I would be shocked if the first interoperability wasn't between two open world games. Um, and so, yeah, so get into the gaming world right now, try and understand it as best you can, because the metaverse is still a ways off. There are literal physical technologies that don't exist yet that need to exist for the metaverse to happen. 
Um, and yet, I think a lot of, you know, again, the core consumer experience and psychology that mm -hmm. marketers are going to have to get very smart about when we think about virtual worlds exists now in gaming. Again, something that I talk about in the book. So there's certainly something to be said about chasing innovation and trying out the new platforms and what have you. I couldn't be more biased, but obviously I believe a lot of that time would be very well spent. And again, engaging with the gaming ecosystem in a more serious way and understanding how consumers are performing their identity and thinking about marketing experiences and establish immersion. These are all things that are going to be really table stakes levels of understanding for the potentiality of us just doing that much more communication with consumers in virtual worlds. So before we take a bit of a pivot on the pod, if people are really as geeked out about this as I am, uh, where can they hear more from you, learn more about Activision Blizzard and get get in the game yeah for me so you can find um you know a lot of my content on jonathanstringfield.com um i write bi-weekly on a substack which is stringfield.substack.com it's called storytelling in virtual worlds and then get in the game um you know how to level up your business in gaming esports and emerging technology is basically available wherever books are sold um, on the Activision Blizzard side, you can see a lot of, you know, the work that we do talking about experiences and gaming for marketers and what have you at ActivisionBlizzardMedia.com. Fantastic. Fantastic. Well, as I said, uh, we're going to take a little bit of a left-hand turn to some questions we ask all of our guests. This first one is open kind of by design. Uh, Jonathan, what are your thoughts on diversity, equity, and inclusion? I'm a sociologist by training. So that's what my PhD is in. That's what all my academic background is in. Sociology is a discipline where we think and look at very seriously the impact of things like racial and socioeconomic inequities and things of that nature. And I think what, you know, along with being, you know, really interesting worldview for just thinking about, you know, again, things like broader technology trends and how we're relating to it or what have you, it also equips you not just with a potential perspective, but also the science that really points to substantive issues with society, how we're organizing our businesses with things like racial or, or, or other inequities at the root of them. So, you know, long and short, what I've found is that it's not just something where we have to address it in a superficial way. And, and candidly, there's much to be done, I think, in the broader business world and certainly at the, at the scale of society. But even starting to understand the broader undertones and the impact that these inequities have, that it's not just bad for society, it's bad for business to have non-diverse businesses were, is something that we're still struggling with. So from my position, I think it's like so many things that the more that we can understand human factors and understand some of the, the science and the social interactions that kind of undergird these phenomenon, the better. And that even if we as individuals who may not have the same lived experiences of you know potentially marginalized groups, we can at least understand what our role is, is and then the hurdles that they have to overcome and then build better to make sure that we're at least trying to mediate some of these potential barriers and blockers. Fantastic. Absolutely fantastic. All right, Jonathan, we've been keeping it kind of light. We're into the, the, the world of gaming. This is your wheelhouse, but mm -hmm. now, now the questions get a little harder. Here we go. Here we go. Jonathan Stringfield, VP, Activision Blizzard, author, PhD. What is your favorite album of all time and why? You know, when you put it like that, you, it's just, it's laden with so much more meaning than, than what I could possibly come out with, notwithstanding the fact that I'm terrible at favorites. <laughs> but my first observation on this, by the way, is that this is just such an old-fashioned question. Mm -hmm. like, we're we're going to get to a point where, at like, 
folks don't think about albums anymore. Like I went to like, I feel like I'm going to date myself by merit of saying like, oh, a CD that I bought. And by the way, I used to work at a music store back in the day, which is again, an old fashioned saying that most young folks might not be acquainted with. Um, but like, you know, was in college at the advent of like Napster and whatnot, which kind of blew all this up. So when I think about favorite album, I do have to then kind of go back to like angsty teenage and middle school years. And we think about angst at that point, it was really undertow by Tool, which I think was mm -hmm. probably the most meaningful album for me. So like, you know, again, back in the days of yore, uh, we had things like music videos and whatnot. And I think like some <laughs> of the artistry that Tool put into some of those music videos with like the claymation, the pain and whatnot that like, mm -hmm. you know, again, me as like a, a developing adolescent definitely did not understand it. But of course we all felt like our lived experience at that time was very painful and meaningful and dour you know, just really spoke to me. So it's funny that it's, you don't fully appreciate the artistry and the meaning of this music until, you know, some 20 years out, which I think is where I am now. But in terms of like albums that I just played the hell out of, and, you know, really was kind of like, you know, formulative for my early years, I think that one probably takes the cake. That's, I love it. I love it. And I think you're, you're absolutely right that this question has an expiration date, but I think I think you got like two or three more generations, maybe, and you're going to get someone who's going to look at you and be like, what the hell are you talking about? What's an album? And you're going to feel like a dinosaur. I'm going to get like, a... I'm just warning you. Yeah, I'm going to get a Spotify playlist link in the chat, and that's going to be yeah. like that one this week. Um, mm -hmm. But I just think for the moment... <laughs> It really does, asking yourself that question brings up a lot of stuff. It is, it's been a very uh, illuminating response every time. I, hear I mean, it. honestly, knowing this one is, was coming, I probably thought more about that question than many other questions I've thought about <laughs> this week. And it really kind of took me to some interesting places. Like, I think it was almost like a little bit of therapy. It's like, man, what, what the hell was I going through when I was like 13 years old? Like, what, what was going on there? I'm just here to help, Jonathan. That's all. That's what I do. No, it's, it, I found it enriching. I feel like I'm a better person now. Somebody kind of after an episode just asked, what's yours? And literally for the next month, I'd just be in the shower staring off into the middle distance trying to run down what that could possibly be. So, you know. We, what did you land on? Um, oddly enough, for very similar reasons, Sublime self-titled. It was just, nice. I mean, I can name 10 albums I think that are better than that but for something that immediately takes me back to a place and like at any point, any time will stop everything and listen to any one song on that album, it's that album. So yeah, there you go. a lot of, a lot of sleepless nights before I got there. Um, <laughs> a lot of sleepless nights to land on sublime. There's yeah, I know. I know exactly. It's, <laughs> it's like climbing up a, a, a mountain in Tibet and they're just being like a, a bodega on the top, you know? Um, uh, so let's let's end uh, a little more casual and bring it up to the current moment. W is there a game you're playing right now that is kind of your favorite? What what game has uh, got your attention for the moment? Yeah, I mean, you know, this is always, of course, kind of a tricky question to ask someone who's kind of headfirst into gaming design because it's games, plural. Mm -hmm. uh, but I'd say of, of the three that I'm kicking around at the moment, um, many of them like Steam Deck, which are great for like, you know, revisiting oldie, older indies like Hollow Knight and recently Neon White, which is fantastic. Um, what has been kind of dominating my like big screen game time, as I like to call it, so like that dedicated time of the evening mm -hmm. is actually Cyberpunk, mm -hmm. um, which, you know, was kind of famous in terms of having a launch that was uneven right. and a lot of building that's that's needed to be done. 
But I think even just this week, you know, luckily enough for me, because I was like right at the point where this was like really good for my play experience, you know, again, do credit to CG, CD Projekt Red, they're still putting out content and patches and, and improving the game experience. What I found is like, yeah, it's, it's, it's a great game and it, it's really something that's kind of drawn me in. But also, you know, I think one of these kind of important broader case studies in terms of like the perils of the game business and what can go wrong and things of that nature. So one of these things that speaks to me on, on a few levels, but as it stands now, really great game. Very cool. Very cool. And actually that just kind of opened up my mind a little bit about it, that games is really one of the only genre of art that you can continually update and improve without upsetting the fan base. I mean, if somebody tried to potentially upset, well, yes, yes, all yes, right, because we we can talk yes. a lot about no, live yeah. service games, and sometimes that doesn't go right, but sometimes absolutely very right. right. Destiny Two right now doing a great job. Yeah, yeah, you're absolutely right. But I just, if you could imagine, you know, somebody re-releasing an album, being like, eh, I didn't like the second verse, or da 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 da. da. Uh, I just don't think that there would be the potential, even for the excitement around that, as where something where cyberpunk kind of fixing and making itself whole uh, has a draw to it. And continuing to update games as technology improves, right? So again, it's a kind mm -hmm. of a unique phenomenon, but also again speaks to the longevity of these experiences. Then also, even if we spend, you know, heck, I'm like 60 hours into Cyberpunk right now, we might want to revisit these games again sometime in the past. Yes, so again, like talks about kind of the stickiness and the power of the medium in general. Jonathan. This has been such an awesome conversation. I really appreciate it. Get in the game. Go get that book. It is well worth reading and really well written. So just all in all, thank you so, so much for being a guest here on the Marketing Futures Podcast. Thank you so much. Super fun. We hope you enjoyed this episode of the Marketing Futures Podcast. Have an idea for a topic or guest for a future episode? Shoot us a note at marketingfutures at ana.net. Be sure to subscribe to the Futures Podcast wherever you listen to podcasts and leave us a review. We'd love to hear from you. And as always, if you're looking to get smart on the future, point your browsers to ana.net slash futures.